This is Guns and Butter. And, and, and the private companies have now become the central part, not only of, of the international war machine, but of the domestic homeland security apparatus. And now the, the major trend in, in all of these 16 agencies is toward farming out as much of the national intelligence budget to the private sector as possible. Seventy percent of the entire national intelligence budget of the United States is now in the hands of the private sector. Uh, private intelligence contractors from companies like Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman are involved with the gathering of intelligence and the production of intelligence documents, including the presidential daily briefing, the single most important uh, intelligence document of the federal government every day. And what, what this means is that we have a situation where already it's nearly impossible to effectively oversee the actions and functions of official law enforcement in this country, of the Pentagon itself. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, the expanding police state. We'll hear excerpts from Project Censored's Media Accountability Conference of October 26th and 27th, 2007, from three of this year's award-winning journalists, Mike Whitney, Jeremy Scahill, and Frank Morales. We begin with independent internet journalist Mike Whitney, who won for censored story number six, Operation Falcon and the Looming Police State. Falcon stands for Federal and Local Cops Organized Nationally. The U.S. Marshal's Office has issued no public statement as to whether the people arrested in Operation Falcon have been processed or released. Mike Whitney. I've been asked to talk about my article on Operation Falcon, and I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with it. At the time, it seemed like a, uh, a rather minor story. I dug it up in the back of our local newspaper, but I thought it, was, uh, it merited enough attention to, uh, to write an article about and do some research on. The apprehension of criminal suspects is something that uh, it can be carried out by local cops or by federal agents, depending on their jurisdiction. It doesn't require over 960 state, local, and federal organizations, agencies, to pick up unregistered sex offenders and undocumented workers. But that's exactly what uh, Operation Falcon did. Between April of 2005 and October of 2006, under the authority of the Justice Department and the U.S. Marshal's Office, the government rounded up over 30,000 criminal suspects. Were any of you here aware of that before you may have read the article in the, uh, the book that the, they, had these, they were conducting these massive sweeps? These were massive uh, coordinated sweeps. And why? What was the intention behind this unprecedented display of police state power? FALCON is an acronym for Federal and Local Cops Organized Locally or Organized Nationally. But... The real meaning of the word precedes the acronym itself, and it relates to, a, of course, a bird of prey that sweeps down on its you know, unsuspecting victim and carries it off to devour it. Now, this is a carefully chosen moniker that reflects the mindset of the people who typically work in law enforcement. I don't mean that critically because 
this can be a positive thing as long as they are constrained within the bounds of the laws of the land that serve the interests of the people. But that's not what happened in Operation Falcon. Operation Falcon does not serve the interests of the people, and I'd like to point out why. The government has admitted on their website that they arrested a number of violent criminals, what they called the worst of the worst. But if that's the case, why did they leave? In some cases, they said that these people were uh, manslaughter suspects. So if that's the case, why did they leave these people at large and put the public at risk violating their basic tenant or the basic obligations as law enforcement? And the reason they did that is because it was more important to them to create this, uh, to break down the traditional walls of separation between the various agencies of state, local, and federal government so that everything could be controlled by a central authority in Washington. Well, by definition, the monopoly on all means of state-sanctioned violence is a dictatorship. So, you know, there's no confusion about that. What they were doing was putting the public at risk so they could conduct these massive sweeps and control those sweeps by breaking down the bureaucracy so that it could be controlled in Washington. I don't see how there could be any objection to that or any challenge to that. So that it's likely that Operation Falcon actually originated at one of the many Washington right-wing think tanks, um, which are devoted more and more to ever-increasing, ever-creative ways to circumventing the law and undermining the Bill of Rights. That's basically what they do. I mean, if you investigate the work of the Federalist Society, which the Supreme Court and most of the appointed judges under uh, both Bush and Reagan, these people intentionally are working to undermine uh, the Bill of Rights and our Constitution. The media played an important part in the collaboration with Operation Falcon. Uh, The first article I found on this was in April in 2005 in a local paper stuffed on page 9A or 9B or something like that. And the article had a weird celebratory sound to it, like... uh, as though the reader was expected to be happy that the government was conducting uh, the first roundup, which uh, rounded up 10,340 people. Now, I don't know what your reaction would be, but this is what caught my attention, is because, you know, in the post-9-11 world where they're willing to pull these these massive sweeps, uh, it's very concerning because, of course, what's the ultimate motive? So uh, they must think that we see law enforcement as a form of trophy hunting. Uh, The article was attributed to the Associated Press, but it didn't give the author's name, so I dug around on the computer and found that there were at least 800 or more articles in newspapers around the country that featured the very same article. And these had exactly the same talking points. In many cases, the positioning of the paragraphs may have been changed. And uh, they all had... Various quotes like, uh, we're making your neighborhood safer, and George Bush's commitment to dealing with a violent crime and terrorism in a post-9-11 world. So it was all, it's all very cheery-sounding blather, no different from an official statement from the State Department or the Justice Department. I don't think anyone here would probably disagree that this isn't really news. This is the media prostituting itself and allowing government to use the cover of uh, the media's legitimacy to deceive people about what they're up to. And it's, 
another example of the media's incestuous relationship with the state. And in this case, it's very dangerous because they're trying to elicit support and shape public opinion on issues that pose a clear threat to our security and freedom. And the greatest threat to personal freedom is always the state. And we need to be reminded of that particularly now because, uh, you know, we go to war for freedom and, and uh, freedom is the mantra. But, of course, uh, the people who are, who are compromising that freedom more than anyone else right now is the government, is the state. No one asked Bush to consolidate the various law enforcement agencies and put them all under a centralized authority. That whole idea runs counter to what our founders believed about the dissemination of power away from the executive. But Falcon reminds me of what happened during Katrina, and many people don't really understand what happened in Katrina, and the narrative has been changed in the aftermath of Katrina to change what actually happened, the facts on the ground. Now, here some people will disagree with my analysis, but I'm just going to tell you from my perspective what happened. The Bush administration deliberately withheld food, water, medical supplies, and relief efforts for three days. Now, we know that. That's pretty well unchallenged, although they've changed that narrative as well. Why? Well, the story we've been told is that FEMA was caught off guard by the size and scope of the disaster, but that's not really true. We know from many independent sources that the administration purposely subverted, purposely subverted the relief efforts, even to the point where privately owned boat owners were turned back from saving people who were stranded on their roofs. Everyone remembers this, correct? And even to the point where the poor city people who were fleeing the city from the rising waters were turned around at gunpoint back into the disaster zone. Now, what's that all about? So, I mean, what are we looking at here? What happened during those three days? During those three days, the Bush administration was demanding direct control over the state National Guard and the local police. And Ray Nagin and uh, Governor Blanco refused. Okay, refused. We'll cut off the water. We're not going to feed them. We're not going to send them a relief. We're going to stick them in an auditorium and let them rot. Wasn't that the answer? So what are we looking at here? Uh, We're looking at as soon as they conceded power to the central government, what happened? The city was militarized immediately. They sent in the the armed mercenaries, the armored vehicles, and the city was shut down. So you tell me, what's the game plan? I mean, how can anyone dispute what happened? This was a dry run. Now, I think their plans are overly ambitious, and I'm not as optimistic or pessimistic about this country being put under martial law, as you may think. Um, This is really an oversized plan on their part. But that's what happened in New Orleans. And New Orleans is a snapshot of the New World Order, as they understand it, in real time. We do not need a crystal ball to tell us what their game plan is. Just look at New Orleans, review the facts for yourself, apart from the media narrative, and you'll see, I think, what I saw. So, their ambitions are pretty, uh, they're pretty ambitious in this regard. Anyway, every natural disaster from this point on, every epidemic, every terrorist attack, is another opportunity for the central government, the Bush Polyp Bureau, to seize more and more power, 
to further undermine our traditional democratic government. And I think that it's only within this particular paradigm that we can understand the real meaning of Operation Falcon. The media is, in fact, doing its job, and I know a lot of the people here understand that that really is the case, because the same people that sit on the boards of the major media also sit on the boards of Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin and Boeing and the rest of the military-industrial complex, and they are getting exactly the results that they're paying for. It's a never-ending stream of diversions of Ellen DeGeneres, of Terry Schiavo, and of course, OJ. So in that regard, they're getting what they want, but we're not getting what we need to the economic and political news we need, even on a basic level, to become more involved and participate in this democracy. And once again, that's what they want. And that's why I believe that even on issues that are unimportant and Probably some of you out there have noticed that the, the lying and the prevaricating and the dissembling from the Bush administration even comes out on incidents or, or uh, events that make no difference at all. They simply lie because it's policy, because you are not supposed to know. And that tells you, to some extent, the value they place on knowledge, because knowledge is power. And they're not going to let you have that. And so they've done everything in their power to create the most powerful institutions in the world today, the media. And those things are being established and built up, empowered against you. It's directed at you. It's not just a matter of shaping opinion or diverting your attention to something else. It's to erode your basic interest in being involved in the democracy to make you give up, to push your attention over into another direction, and ultimately to have you conform and just give up your personal liberty without an argument. And we find this on all levels. I mean, uh, when we went to the airport today to fly down here, we were standing in the line much like we all do, and we're all getting much more conditioned to that, aren't we? We stand in a line with two or 300 people and we're circling before we get to the security guards and the security guards prod us and go through our personal material and we strip down and there's always the danger of a body search. And so I'm saying to my wife, I say, in just a normal voice, I, I say, you know, if you really wanted to strip people of their personal liberty, what you would do is you wouldn't put an armed guard at every doorway and every cor street corner what you do is devise some sort of scheme so that you could strip them of their personal liberties without them really knowing what's going on. And of course, that's what's happening. We're all being conditioned. And, and my wife looked up at me and said, do we have to talk about this now? <laughs> <laughs> it's a goofy thing to think about, but of course, you know, I was thinking in relation to the, uh, the meeting that I was going to be attending today. And and it, so it became much more immediate. But the fact of the matter is, is I'm becoming more acclimated to this new atmosphere, as well as probably many of you are. So we're going to be talking about these very serious issues, the Military Commissions Act, the loss of habeas corpus, the uh, 
ending of posse comitatus and this deliberate effort to put together a police state apparatus that could be sprung at any minute. We don't know. It could be some kind of provocation before Iran. It could be whatever. But what I think we should become more sensitive to are the normal conditioning factors in our lives that are stripping us of our personal freedom that possibly we're not as sensitive to. How much have things changed in Bush's America? This is a deep, systemic change. And things are dramatically different. And why isn't America waking up? We use freedom as a mantra for going off to war, but what about protecting our own personal liberty? Uh, I don't know what the, the touchstone is or the tripwire or the catalyst that is going to get people galvanized, but the, the fact of the matter is, is we need to wake up, and pretty soon... You've just heard from Project Censored Award winner, independent journalist Mike Whitney, on his story, Operation Falcon and the Looming Police State, from the Media Accountability Conference. Next, we hear from Jeremy Scahill, who won for his story, Our Mercenaries in Iraq, Blackwater Incorporated. Today's show, The Expanding Police State. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You know, when, when I think about this issue of martial law and, and to the extent that I've, I've studied it and the militarization of the police and the paramilitarization of the police is an incredibly important area that bears much uh, closer scrutiny and, and deeper investigation, um, I, I think it's important to back up and look at the state of dissent in this country right now, uh, if only a police state was necessary. Um, I, I think we've, we've seen an incredible deflation in, in the, the resistance movements in this country uh, by organizations purporting to be anti-war, like MoveOn.org, uh, where there's been an absolute co-optation uh, of the anti-war movement. And it's, it's happened from groups like MoveOn.org, to a lesser extent United for Peace and Justice, and certainly uh, the Democrats in the Congress. Uh, people, people are just blogger heads, left and right, blog each other, listserv. You know, they, they exist in cyberspace. There's been a dramatic decrease in direct action. Uh, you know, we, we, we've had some real victories in this country recently uh, in resistance movements, and they've primarily been on uh, local levels uh, from poor folks and people of color who do not have the support of the broader, largely white, uh, elite anti-war movement. Uh, Kenneth Foster's life was spared in Texas because of grassroots mobilization, not because of any, affinity, any, any solidarity from the anti-war movement. It was from former prisoners themselves, death row prisoners who resisted, uh, and from grassroots activists who tried to get Democrats to come out and speak against the execution of Kenneth Foster, and when they didn't, they continued on with their campaign. Uh, and because of that, he's alive. And the, the reason why I bring this up in the context of martial law is that I think we have a real crisis in this country now where people have been, have, have been uh, led like lemmings into uh, believing in, in this one-party system. If there was ever a, uh, a mandate for a Congress to enact change and actually stand up for the will of the people, it was this Congress. Nancy Pelosi is a disgrace to this country. If there ever was a moment for the Democrats to stand up and differentiate themselves from the Republicans, it would have been this year. The crowning achievement of this Congress is that they have managed to obtain an approval rating lower than that of President Bush. One of the things that we we all, I think, need to remember uh, is that when you play the numbers game, you become Eli Pariser, uh, from, from moveon.org, who will probably be 
asked to be in whatever Democratic administration takes power if indeed the Democrats win. Uh, but there's also the little way. Uh, and, and, and the reason why I brought up the, 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 the campaign and the death penalty in Kenneth Foster is because we have, to, we have to reclaim the idea of grassroots mobilization and not become concerned with are we 100,000 people or are we 10 people? Uh, because we're, we're also talking about the conscience of a country. Uh, and it's important to, to, to mobilize in our local communities. And I think that it's, it, it, it is so astonishingly clear that we have to focus our efforts also on breaking this one-party system. It cannot be the anybody-but-Bush narrative that's rolled out once again because it deflates movements. And we have to, we have to not be afraid uh, to be resistors and not be afraid to, to be so audacious as to say no in our everyday lives, in our public and private lives, to all of this madness. And when we look at the paramilitarization of our society, it's important to remember that if we fail to reach out to the communities that are left most vulnerable by these forces, uh, then we're not really standing for the conscience of this country. And I think New Orleans, as, as Mike was just uh, explaining, very much provided not only a window into the future, uh, but it also gave a sense of the, the times in which we live and what the poor of this country face on an, on an everyday basis. Uh, when the levees broke and the city flooded, we all know well that, that people were systematically abandoned, denied food, called looters for taking perishable goods, and the wealthy brought in their mercenaries, and Bechtel came in and got the no-bid contracts, and KBR came in, and all of these private security companies. I think at one point there were 180 private security companies registered by the Secretary of State uh, of the state of Louisiana. Uh, and, and, and so the reality for those people who were survivors and stayed in their city and demanded to stay there, they then encountered an almost overnight militarization of their streets. And there were ICE agents uh, that were patrolling around in unmarked vehicles, and there were mercenaries, and then the National Guard came in, and there was the 82nd Airborne, and uh, that's, that's, that's the window into the future. But the fact is that you didn't need the levees to break for that to be the reality of so many poor communities in this country uh, that exist in, a, in a, a permanent state of terror, where the police are, are, are hardly the protectors of a society, but are the tormentors uh, of people who dare to resist just by living, uh, their very lives become an act of resistance. And I think that what we've seen also in Iraq is very much a model for the homeland. The Bush administration has done is to consolidate uh, military and paramilitary operations to the executive branch, as, as has already been said. Blackwater in Iraq doesn't work for the Department of Defense. It works for the Department of State, which makes it a direct armed wing of the administration. And, and, and the private companies have now become the central part, not only of, of the international war machine, but of the domestic homeland security apparatus. In the United States, we have, there are 16 intelligence agencies. The Bush administration consolidated them under the office of the, the Director of National Intelligence. The first Director of National Intelligence was John Negroponte, who was one of the butchers of, of Central America, uh, was one of the coordinators of the Contra War, uh, was also the U.S. ambassador uh, in Iraq. He was the first head of, uh, of, of the consolidated intelligence uh, industry in the United States. The, the current head of it was the former top industry spokesperson for the private intelligence industry. And now the, the major trend in, in all of these 16 agencies is toward farming out as much of the national intelligence budget to the private sector as possible. 70% of the entire 
national intelligence budget of the United States is now in the hands of the private sector. Uh, private intelligence contractors from companies like Booz Allen Hamilton, uh, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, are involved with the gathering of intelligence and the production of intelligence documents, including the presidential daily briefing, the single most important uh, intelligence document of the federal government every day. And what, what this means is that we have a situation where already it's nearly impossible to effectively oversee the actions and functions of official law enforcement in this country, of the Pentagon itself. I mean, I, I just went through a process of a year filled with unsuccessfully filing FOIA requests. Uh, being accused by the State Department that the last time they gave me a document, I caused what they called a nut roll, uh, which is a pain akin to having your testicles run over by a, a steamroller, because I had the audacity to get a document and publish it uh, that exposed the program that Blackwater was working for in Iraq. And so they harass journalists who get these documents. And we have enough trouble overseeing the official business of the government. And now they farm it out to companies which gives them plausible deniability. We, we only have 170,000 troops in Iraq. We don't have 400,000. Uh, when Blackwater's operating in Iraq, it voluntarily uh, reports incidents in which it opened fire. Um, and so now you, you take, us, you take the, the, the people even further away from any sort of oversight of, of security or paramilitary functions that are being done in the names of the people of this country and with our tax dollars. And so it's not just about the no-bid contracts and giving favorable financial arrangements to your cronies. It has everything to do with covert action. You know, Dennis Kucinich, when I, I talked to him early on in this phenomenon, uh, you know, before a lot of, of people in the Congress paid attention to the issue of private forces, and Kucinich has been investigating false flag operations of uh, contractors in Iraq, using them to sow the seeds of sectarian conflict uh, inside of Iraq. Uh, he posed the following question, what's the difference between uh, covert actions and overt actions over which you have no oversight. And, and, and that's really what we're, what we're talking about here. We live in the, in the midst of the most radical privatization agenda in the history of our country. We see it in prisons. We see it in law enforcement. We see it in schools. We see it in healthcare. Now we see it in its Frankenstein manifestation in the US war machine. And there's been a consolidation uh, to the Department of Interior, Department of State, Department of Homeland Security, of all of these paramilitary functions. And now it's hitting the Border Patrol as well. I've paid a lot of attention to Blackwater's operations around the world, but what is very disturbing is what is, represents Blackwater's largest business sector, and that is training. Blackwater is one of the premier trainers of SWAT teams around the country. In fact, their, their business in training SWAT teams started after Columbine in 1999. Blackwater erected a mock high school on their compound in Moyak, North Carolina, and they called it Are You Ready High? And they invited law enforcement agencies from around the country to come and train at Blackwater's compound in how to face down against the, the violent youth of America. Uh, recently, Eric Prince was talking about how his forces could have trained uh, the, the, the first responders at Virginia Tech better and probably reduced the number of uh, casualties or deaths on the, on, on the campus. And so now that Blackwater is pushing to have a greater share of the FLETC program, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center program, saying they could more effectively and cheaply train Border Patrol agents. Another company, DynCor, has been agitating to actually put boots on the ground and have a, a privatized Border Patrol. I mean, we, we already deal with the, with the Minutemen uh, harassing uh, immigrants and people who are crossing the border. When we talk about it in the case of Iraq, we're talking about a subversion of the citizenry. We're talking about companies who hire up 
forces from over 100 countries around the world, many of them poor countries whose economies have been systematically destabilized by U.S. neoliberal economic policy and iron-fisted military policy. And you take, take people who have no direct stake in a war, you take people whose home governments are actually opposed to the war, and you deploy them to fight the poor of the world, the poor fighting the poor in the service of a private American or British corporation. But when you talk about it at home, inside of the United States, uh, what you're talking about is a, a reality where all of us are being yanked away from any kind of oversight of actions that are being conducted in our names. And ultimately what this means is that there is no such thing as a federal government anymore. When you work for a private company, uh, your, mo your motive is profit. In, in the best of worlds, people who sign up for the military or sign up for, for government service, there's some kind of principle at play. Now, we may have a disagreement on that. We may argue with someone who joins the military, but a lot of people join up thinking that. That's their mentality. When you join up with a private company that's in the business of killing, you're a mercenary, and you're going to do what your employer tells you. And in the case of Blackwater, your employer is a man named Eric Prince, who's a radical Christian supremacist with close ties to the Bush administration, who apparently takes orders from no one. And so he's issuing the orders. And in the case of Blackwater or DynCorp or any of these forces that are increasingly deployed inside of the United States or are being contracted to build emergency detention centers uh, to deal with an influx of immigrants, as it's, as it's put, um, what we're talking about in the case of all of these companies deploying domestically is a backdoor subversion of posse comitatus. Uh, you, you, almost don't, you, you almost don't need to have a ban on the military uh, engaging in domestic operations when you can simply hire a private company, which is a paramilitary force, not through the military, not through the Pentagon, but on contract with the Department of Homeland Security Federal Protective Service. And that's how Blackwater was hired to go into New Orleans. And the guys who were deployed on the streets are better trained and more elite than any soldiers the Pentagon would deploy domestically inside of the United States. They're former Navy SEALs, former Delta Force, guys with 15, 17 years of covert operations wet experience. Uh, around the world. It's a backdoor subversion of posse comitatus. And, and, and so I, I've been desperately trying to sound the alarm bells, not just within the anti-war movement, not just within the independent media, but also with, within the corporate media, trying to press people to look at this story because, folks, this is, this is going to become the premier life or death issue of our society. It's not just about the official war machine. It's these private companies, which, which I think have the potential to be infinitely more frightening in the impact that they can have internationally and at home than the official entities that we already have a hell of a time trying to oversee. You're listening to journalist and author Jeremy Scahill from panel discussions at Project Censored's Media Accountability Conference. Today's show, The Expanding Police State. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The policies that we have seen uh, enacted by this administration are part of a trajectory that, that is bipartisan in, in its creation. Uh, the Clinton administration laid the groundwork for many of the policies that the Bush administration has implemented, and certainly this administration has shown itself uniquely uh, uh, capable of capitalizing on all sorts of tragedies, disasters, attacks, uh, etc., to push through the agenda even faster. But this is a very bipartisan story that we're dealing with here, and anyone who thinks that uh, that, the, that, that all of this began with, with Bush taking power in 2000 has not been paying attention to U.S. foreign policy for uh, several decades. You take Iraq, for example. 
Iraq is not just about the looting of that country or, or global oil pricing or, or some, some kind of a, uh, of a systematic crucifixion of what was a, uh, a powerful, albeit repressive, uh, Arab nationalist state. It also has to do with the looting of the U.S. Treasury and with domestic policy inside of the United States. R right now in Iraq, you have 630 corporations that are working for the U.S. government in Iraq, 630 corporations. There are over 170 private security, private military companies, I call them mercenary companies, over 170 operating in Iraq. That's almost as many nations as there are registered at the United Nations. What we're seeing here is a, is a, a radical revolution in military affairs and, and a targeting of a global structure that depends on the organization of nation states who negotiate with each other, engage in international diplomacy. It's a highly flawed system. It's a very violent system. It's a very militarized system of structure in the world. But it's now being subverted by an even worse system, wherein you have corporate armies that are being built up through billions of dollars in public funds, some of which have the ability to take down a small national military. Uh, Blackwater is, is actually a relatively small company. Uh, it, I, I sort of compare it to a high-end boutique on a strip full of Walmarts. Uh, Blackwater has operations in nine countries uh, around the world, including inside of the United States. There's a British company called Armor Group, which has operations in 38 countries around the world, including inside of the United States in the U.S. Gulf. And so what, what we're seeing right now is a siphoning of public funds, billions and billions of dollars, not just from the U.S. government, but from the British government, the Australian government, into the coffers of these private companies. And in the case of Blackwater USA, which has now renamed itself Blackwater Worldwide, uh, this is a company that has experienced meteoric ascent to prominence in the U.S. war machine. And it's, it's engaged in a campaign that is, is no less than a campaign to build a parallel structure to the U.S. national security apparatus and the U.S. war machine. Blackwater's presence in Iraq is a tiny fraction of what the company actually does. In fact, Blackwater very well may leave Iraq in its overt capacity by May, perhaps even sooner. Maybe not, but I think it's possible that they will. Uh, the heat is on right now to some extent. Somebody needs to get uh, thrown out so that the U.S. can repair its, its diplomatic relations with the Iraqi government, and that they're, they're sort of rolling out the bad apple narrative again, and there certainly are competitors that want to step in. But in the midst of this scandal, Blackwater continues to get incredibly lucrative contracts. Recently, it was announced that Blackwater is sharing a $15 billion contract with four other mercenary companies to, quote, fight terrorists with drug ties. So now they enter the fray in the so-called war on drugs as part of a $15 billion contract. They recently were awarded a $92 million contract by the Pentagon to operate flights in Central Asia. Blackwater earlier this year started its own private intelligence company called Total Intelligence Solutions. It's being headed by three veterans of the Central Intelligence Agency. Uh, one of them is Jay Kofer Black, who was a 30-year CIA veteran, the former head of the CIA's counterterrorism center, the man who, in the aftermath of 9-11, was tasked with the hunt uh, for Osama bin Laden, who on September 13, 2001, was sitting in the White House Situation Room and promised President Bush that he was going to have his operatives whack off Osama bin Laden's head, place it in a cardboard box on dry ice, and have it shipped back to Washington so that he could present it to President Bush. He was known in the administration as the flies on the eyeballs guy because he said, Mr. President, when we're through with them, they're going to have flies crawling across their eyeballs. He told the Russians we're going to chop off their heads and put them on pikes. He is a man who is seemingly obsessed with corporal mutilation. He oversaw the CIA's extraordinary rendition program, which started under Clinton and was escalated under Bush. He's now the number two man uh, at Blackwater. 
and is heading up this private intelligence company. Uh, under him is Robert Richer, the former Deputy Director of Operations at Central Intelligence, and then under him is Enrique Rick Prado, one of the veteran field operatives uh, of the Central Intelligence Agency, and the list goes on and on. So you have uh, well over 100 years of CIA experience uh, in this new Blackwater project that is now being privatized, and the CIA-type services uh, of this company are being marketed aggressively to Fortune 500 companies. It's a sort of B2B uh, entity now. And so Blackwater is deeply involved with that. That's the cutting edge right now is privatized intelligence, high-end military technology, uh, engagement with what's called fourth-generation warfare, or asymmetric warfare, where the idea of a nation-state becomes very blurry and you're fighting asymmetric wars, some of which are in the United States, some of which are outside of the borders of the United States. And Blackwater is very much at the cutting edge of this uh, industry. They have an aviation division with over 40 aircraft. They have a 7,500-acre private military base, uh, the largest of its kind in the world in the state of North Carolina. Uh, the, the Maritime Division, they're man manufacturing their own armored vehicles called the Grizzly, which are going to be licensed for use as well on U.S. highways. Uh, it's, it's being uh, portrayed as sort of the most versatile armored vehicle in, in, in history, uh, combining the versatility of an SUV with the durability of an armored vehicle. Blackwater is also manufacturing surveillance blimps that they're, they're pushing to the Department of Homeland Security for use in monitoring the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, Blackwater does an enormous amount of business in training, uh, paramilitary-type training of uh, local, state, and federal law enforcement, uh, border patrol, as well as uh, the military itself. And so what we see is, is, is a model emerging, and Blackwater certainly is one of the most innovative companies, but, but it, it, it has... Uh, dozens and dozens of, uh, of competitors around the world who are engaged in the same types of activities. The com company also has been expanding its reach inside of the United States, recently opening a new facility in Illinois called Blackwater North. They're fighting back local opposition here in the state of California uh, to a proposed site just outside of San Diego in, uh, in Potrero, California, population 850. I was out there a couple of months ago uh, talking with residents there, and there's a real uprising against Blackwater uh, in the south of the state. And, and this uh, proposed facility is about 900 acres, just a stone's throw from Tecate, Mexico, near the U.S.-Mexico border. So if Blackwater loses its overt Iraq work, uh, this is not a company that's going to be hurting for business. And the reality is that while Blackwater is the focus right now, and it appears as though uh, Eric Prince has sort of been placed on the ropes by Henry Waxman and others, the reality is that this is, is very much a bipartisan program. President Clinton was, was a major backer of the use of private forces in the U.S. war machine. We talk about Dick Cheney and Halliburton. Who do we think gave Halliburton all of those contracts during the 1990s? It was President Clinton, who was a very aggressive supporter uh, of mercenary forces for the use in the Balkans. They were used in Croatia to turn the tide of the Yugoslav Civil War, and then in Kosovo in the aftermath of the 78-day uh, NATO bombing. And I, I want to I close by, by, uh, by saying that I think that uh, when, we, when we look abroad at Iraq and Afghanistan, we see the corporatization of the U.S. war machine on a scale that has never before existed, where you have now more private corporate personnel deployed in Iraq on the U.S. government payroll, 180,000 so-called private contractors operating alongside 170,000 U.S. troops. That means that the U.S. military is now the junior partner in the coalition that's actually occupying Iraq. The system where you would use a coalition of willing nations has now been replaced by the use of a coalition of billing corporations. 
And at home, we saw a window into how this machine is being applied inside of the United States in the aftermath of Katrina. In New Orleans, it was like Baghdad on the bayou. Before there was any kind of a relief operation, I don't even know if FEMA has arrived yet in New Orleans, you had all of the same war profiteers operating in Iraq and Afghanistan descend on the U.S. Gulf. Uh, these guys were former special forces operators, Navy SEALs. Uh, some of them had just been in Iraq two weeks earlier guarding the U.S. ambassador. And here they were deployed on the streets of New Orleans, one of them complaining that there wasn't enough action. What on earth could he have meant by that, that there wasn't enough action? Uh, I, enc I encountered Israeli commandos who'd been hired by a wealthy businessman who was talking about the need for the demographics of New Orleans to change or he was going to be out of there. He flew them in from Galveston, Texas. They work for a company called Instinctive Shooting International, which draws its forces from Mossad, Shin Beit, Israel's intelligence apparatus. And here they were operating an armed checkpoint on the streets of a U.S. city. And so in, in, in wrapping up, what we see in New Orleans was a window into what will happen in this country, what can happen in this country, not just in the aftermath of man-made disasters, natural disasters, or national emergencies. The poor get abandoned, left without water, left to drown, called looters when they break into a grocery store to take perishable goods next door to a Best Buy that no one's touched the stereos in because you can't eat them. And the rich bring in their mercenaries to protect their property. And the government hires mercenaries and chastises the poor for misusing their $2,000 FEMA debit cards. And I think this is a story that we need to aggressively investigate as citizen journalists, professional journalists, uh, because it very much has to do with all of our liberties. We're in the midst of the most radical privatization agenda in the history of our country, and it's shameful, the lack of coverage in the corporate media, and we need to escalate the coverage in the independent media. Thank you. You've been listening to investigative journalist Jeremy Scahill from panel discussions at Project Censored's Media Accountability Conference. Jeremy Scahill won for his story, Are Mercenaries in Iraq?, Blackwater Incorporated. Lastly, we hear from investigative journalist and Episcopal priest Frank Morales, Project Censored Award winner for his story, Bush Moves Toward Martial Law. Today's show, The Expanding Police State. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What I want to say about media, that uh, there's, been, there's been no news coverage on this bill. In fact, this piece um, only appeared online. We had a reprint in our local Lower East Side newspaper, but uh, I was talking before, um, I was sitting at home and I live in a squat. Uh, we took it over, what, 13 years ago now and we're still there. Um, the Lower East Side, you may know, is, is a heavy, heavily gentrified area, so it's no mean fact that we were able to still be in, in our place, but we're there. And uh, I, I had stumbled upon this, uh, this, this uh, little fact that the, the Insurrection Act had been reformulated um, while reading a Congressional Research Service piece. And uh, I did a little research, and then I learned that Patrick Leahy, Senator of Vermont, uh, was opposing this aspect of the, of the bill, this uh, 2007 Defense Authorization Act, which is the annual five, six hundred billion dollar giveaway to the Pentagon and its assorted appendages of death and so on. Um, so I just did some fleshing that out, uh, got in touch with Leahy's people and learned, you know, he's, he used the term martial law 
the New York Times even editorialized uh, on February 19th, 07, in the body making martial law easier. It's pretty straightforward. The provision signed into law in October weakens two obscure but important bulwarks of liberty. One is the doctrine that bars military forces, including a federalized National Guard, from engaging in law enforcement. Called posse comitatus, it was enshrined in law after the Civil War to preserve the line between civil government and the military. The other is the Insurrection Act of 1807, which provides the major exemptions to posse comitatus. It essentially limits a president's use of the military and law enforcement to putting down lawlessness, insurrection, and rebellion where a state is violating federal law, depriving people of constitutional rights. Um, the newly enacted provisions upset this careful balance. They shift the focus from making sure that federal laws are enforced to restoring public order, um, and so on. Basically, as you know, read the piece and we'll hear more about this weekend, the, the rewrite of the Insurrection Act now allows Bush to station troops anywhere in the country without the consent of local governors or local authorities, um, thereby facilitating martial law, martial referring to military law, um, so that National Guard troops can be pulled out of New York and brought to bear in Berkeley in a protest situation without any, any local authorities' uh, acquiescence. Um, the danger here is that if we don't uh, repeal this section, and Senator Leahy now has a, a bill in, uh, in Congress, uh, Senate Bill 513, F Senate Bill 513, which would repeal or, or uh, you know, put back into its original phraseology that section of the bill, um, thereby you know allowing for local input on the stationing of troops in your in your neighborhood um, potentially the stationing of, of Blackwater troops which is the subject that Jeremy's uh, you know letting us all know about more now these days um, so this is very critical that we support and uh, and learn about this bill Senate bill 513 which has the potential of, of pushing this back because the uh, the Pentagon, is very clearly, and those, those elements within the Pentagon who are, who are dead set on repressing our ability to resist uh, the Bush agenda, both uh, domestically and globally, because it's a dialectic between the agenda that's being uh, looked at, you know, the potential invasion of Iran and so forth, and trying to repress preemptively our ability to resist at home through the utilization of martial law type maneuvers, um, detention camps and the, and the rest. Peter Dale Scott and others had have pointed out. So, I mean, this infrastructure is there. This is real. We need to, we need to figure out what we're going to do about this, but um, I want to say a few things about that. But um, this is ongoing. The Pentagon recently published uh, a civil support uh, joint publication 3-28. It's a policy statement of the Joint Chiefs. This is this past September. And in the, uh, in the section here that, that deals with civil disturbance operations, um, it states that the president has the authority to deploy troops within the United States to enforce the laws. The enforcement of the laws to restore public order, Chapter 15 of Title 10 USC, parentheses, formerly Insurrection Act, authorizes the president to employ the armed forces of the U.S., including the National Guard, within the United States to restore order or to enforce federal law after a major public emergency. Quote, the president and this is this reaffirmation of what's in this, what's now become law that I'm referring to here in this piece. 
Quote, the President may act unilaterally to suppress an insurrection or domestic violation without the request or authority of the State Governor and to exercise his major public emergencies authority to direct the Secretary of Defense to provide supplies, services, and equipment necessary for the immediate preservation of life and property. So not only you know, has this been passed in the, in the dead of night, this particular bill, because this Defense Authorization Act was signed the very same day that the Military Commissions Act was signed. Um, it, it was later in the afternoon, it was quiet, and uh, no one knows about it, nobody covers it, nobody knows what we know about it. Um, we got to tell more people about it. Um, because this martial law uh, designation, the entire question of the penetration of the U.S. Um, by the Pentagon, the militarism on the home front, the, the uh, setting up of a domestic military command, NORTHCOM, the militarization of the police, the, the SWAT, um, the utilization of these parallel police forces, ICE, um, Homeland Security agents, and so forth. There's a book by uh, Mueller, M-U-L-L-E-R, called Hitler's Justice, in which he talks about the way in which Hitler um, maneuvered the justice system in Germany to accomplish his goals. And they didn't eradicate those structures that were there. They created parallel structures you know, and then kind of coordinated them. That was the term that they were fond of. And what we're seeing now is a proliferation of these law, so-called law enforcement agencies that are militarized um, that we're creating this symbiotic relationship, a consolidation, an identification between the military and the police function within America, which is tantamount to a police state. This is a telltale sign of a police state. So the question is, what do we do about it? Because I think now, you know, what, what has been accomplished and needs to continue to be accomplished on, on, in terms of the work of journalists, all I have to do is say in terms of the, the, the major media, the mass media, they're bought and sold and so on. They're scared. Um, and, and so we need to rely on, on journalists like the people who are sitting here and new creative means of getting the word out to people and do the best we can to educate and inform people what's going on. But in the meanwhile, we need to be creative at the base and deal horizontally in our community. Take martial law. If martial law is ever, is, is ever going to come, okay, it's going to come locally. It's going to come right here. It's not some abstraction. It's going to come in our local community. We need to figure out what is it that we can do while we still have some semblance of, of uh, bourgeois democratic uh, uh, rights and you know, the ability to legislate in our own uh, interest and so on, figure out ways in which we can resist this uh, rather than simply wait for it to come and assume you know, that it's uh, fait accompli. Uh, one of the things that we might consider is to recodify posse comitatus-like statutes on the local level. Separate, create strict boundaries between the military and the police function. This is in terms of technology transfers, um, the kinds of weaponry, the kinds of rules of engagement that uh, local police forces are subject to or, or that operate under. Rules of engagement are to be stated. The police department should produce them. Um, they produce contracts for the weaponry that they possess those so-called non-lethal weapons that they contract for and buy, they get them from certain contractors. We need to demilitarize the police at, at the base. We need to preempt their ability to orchestrate martial law, not wait for it to come. It's clear they're moving in that direction. It's clear that the people in control in this country are out of control. We are in a situation of, uh, of un unprecedented possibilities that could go either way. It's like Buckminster Fuller said, uh, it's, it's utopia or oblivion. 
barbarism or socialism. I don't know if that's quite appropriate, but you, you get the point. I mean, it's, it's that kind of moment for us. Um, my thing is to figure out what kind of action we're going to take. How are we going to shut Blackwater down? You know, how are we going to do what we need to do to protect ourselves against the, uh, you know, this, this, this overreaching uh, executive power that, that threatens, uh, you know, our ability to, to think, this thought crime, this legislation that was just passed in the House about radical thought and so on and so forth. These people have to be stopped, it's clear. Now, I don't think, you know, as a squatter, in terms of the housing question, people, you know, I'd always talk to people about, um, think of it as a pyramid. You can go to the top of the pyramid and demand housing. We want housing. Poor people need housing and so forth. Or you could work at the base and take the housing. You see? And by taking the housing, you create negotiating space at the top. <laughs> They're more likely to deal with you if you take it. You see, so think in terms of this police mechanism, this martial law, you know, this, it, we need to organize it within our communities, particularly in those sectors of the population that are, that are the most brutalized and oppressed by these forces. I think that what we need to do in terms of some of these issues that we've talked about tonight, uh, the privatization of, uh, you know, the, the oppressor um, on, the, on the street corner, and the Blackwaters, the, the thugs for hire, and so on, is to be creative. Um, we have to use the, the, the power of the imagination. We have to be creative and we have to take chance. We also, I, I think, need to recognize that we need to, we need to sacrifice. We need to spend more time and, uh, and, and recognize that uh, if it's not about us, it's about our children. Um, and that we have to give up, uh, you know, that, um, those, those, all that entertainment, all those distractions and so forth. I'm not trying to get preachy here, but I think we have to just recognize that there's a lot at stake right now. Uh, and that it's time to, like, step it up. It's time to step it up. Forget the American dream. The American dream is an American nightmare. It's particularly for the poor and the oppressed. Um, you know, it's like, it, it ain't about survival. It ain't about climbing the bloody ladder. It ain't about any of that sort of thing, right? It's about listening to your conscience and listening to your heart, educating yourself so that you can be a, a, a participant in the struggle for, for life, that you can be creative. Um, the rest of it ain't worth a damn. And, you know, it's like uh, you, we can mindlessly go about and try to take care of our own needs and get our, uh, acquire the things that we want and so forth and so on. Trust me, you, you're not going to be fulfilled by that. Empathizing with those people who are suffering and oppressed around the world and fighting for justice, that's going to fill you. Believe me. You'll get the other stuff. You know, you're smart enough, you food, shelter, and clothing, you can manage that. Get involved in the struggle. That'll fill you. That's what needs to happen. You know, the rest of this stuff is just so much, uh, you know, BS that they fill you in order to keep you in line. That, that ain't what it's about. Resist. Um, educate yourself. You know, educate, agitate, and organize. Get out there. Make a better world, and forget about all this other stuff. The other, it'll come along. You'll figure out how to take care of yourself. That's, that, that'll happen. But if you just sort of fixate on that and, and forget the fact that your brothers and sisters all around the world are suffering as a result of our, our uh, ability to pick from 25 different kinds of tasty bread or something like that, you know, forget about it. You know, it's like you, you sacrifice your soul. You know, these people are desperate. You know, it's, it's a serious business. But, uh, but we're serious. You know, we're serious, and we can be serious, you know, and there's a lot more of us than there are, than there are them. They got a whole lot of people that are, that are going for the buck, you know. Need a job? Kill somebody. You know, like that. Okay.
but uh, we can we can deal with that because we're de we're dealing with the spirit and and, and the, you know the power of love, and the power of justice, and the power of what's really real, and that speaks to people all around the world, all around the world, totally. It's a global soul, you know, and uh, we need to stand up, but we got to point the way forward. just heard from investigative journalist and Episcopal priest Frank Morales, winner this year of a Project Censored Award for his story, Bush Moves Toward Martial Law. In 2003, Frank Morales founded the campaign to demilitarize the police in New York City. These panels were recorded at Project Censored's Media Accountability Conference of October 26th and 27th, 2007. Today's show has been The Expanding Police State. We heard today from Mike Whitney on his story, Operation Falcon and the Looming Police State. From Jeremy Scahill on his story, Our Mercenaries in Iraq, Blackwater Incorporated. And from Frank Morales on his story, Bush Moves Toward Martial Law. Visit Project Censored's website at www.projectcensored.org. That's projectcensored.org. The new book, Censored 2008, The Top 25 Censored Stories of 2006 and 2007, is now available. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.net or visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.net. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look what this side just said.